Hey, Leading Learning listener, if you represent a membership organization looking for ways to expand your online course catalog rapidly with high quality content, we have good news. At leadinglearning.com AMA, you can find out how to make online training from the American Management Association available to your learners. Through a partnership between AMA and Tagoras, the parent company of Leading Learning, you can give your learners access to more than 70 e-learning modules covering essential business topics ranging from leading and innovating, to managing projects effectively, to working in hybrid teams. For details on how to grow your catalog with courses from a true global leader in management training, visit leadinglearning.com AMA. If you're a leader or an aspiring leader in the business of lifelong learning, you're in the right place. I'm Salisa Steele. And I'm Jeff Cobb. And this is the Leading Learning Podcast. Hello and welcome to episode 114 of the Leading Learning Podcast. In this episode, we're going to do something a little bit different. As some listeners will know, we delivered a session titled Facing and Embracing the Future of Learning as part of Association Success's Surge 2017 Virtual Summit. And we had Ariana Rahak, the head of Association Success, on the podcast recently. We'll be sure to link to that episode in the show notes. And we thought it would be useful to provide the recording of our session as a podcast episode. Before we get to that recording, though, we want to highlight a new initiative that we've launched and also provide a couple of resources for this episode. So first for that new initiative, we've mentioned in recent episodes that we're collaborating with the folks at 100 Reviews to launch a new Review My LMS site. And that site is now ready to go. And the first stage of making it as valuable as possible to you is to collect reviews. It works like this. If you contribute a review to the site, you get access to all of the other reviews on the site at no charge. And the review process is really straightforward. You just go to reviewmylms.com, click give a review, and follow the instructions for completing the brief questionnaire. You'll get the satisfaction of helping out peers at other organizations, and you'll also have continuing access to reviews of other systems as they come in, and they are, in fact, coming in. We have quite a review, few reviews already. So while we're on the topic of Review My LMS, we want to be sure to thank the founding sponsors of that site. We feel like the ability to get high-quality, dependable reviews of learning management systems from peer organizations has been a gap in the association and broader learning business market for a long time now. So we're really excited to know that that gap is being filled with support from the following companies, Community Brands, Digitel, NextThought, and WebCourseWorks. We're going to link to the websites of each of those companies from the show notes for this episode at leadinglearning.com slash episode 114. And if you're looking for a learning management system, we really encourage you to visit those companies, see what they have to offer. And for the resources for this episode, we want to highlight a couple of items. First, since this episode features a session from a virtual event, we want to be double extra sure that all listeners know about our association virtual events report. This is a free Tagoras report that draws on data from more than 100 associations to help you understand the emerging role of virtual events in the association sector. It'll help you learn fast and get on the road to success. To download it, just go to the show notes, which once again are at leadinglearning.com slash episode 114. The second resource we want to highlight is one that's not quite ready at the time we're publishing this episode, but it's going to be ready very soon. And it is an ebook that Association Success is producing as a complement to the Facing and Embracing the Future of Learning session. The ebook does a good job of summarizing the major points of the session. It highlights case studies that we mentioned, and it also brings in additional content beyond what you'll hear in the recording for this podcast. It's definitely worth downloading, and we will post a link to that ebook as soon as it's published. We've seen a nearly finished draft of it, so we know it's going to be ready very soon. And in fact, if you're listening to this episode anytime after the beginning of 2018, the link should be available. So to get it, just go to leadinglearning.com slash episode 114. So now we'll turn to the surge session. And 
in this session, we're joined by Amanda Beckner of Avixa, and uh, Avixa was actually called Infocom International at the time we made this recording. The organization has since undergone a, a big rebranding, but you will hear us refer to Infocom at, at times during the recording. And we're also joined by Josh Goldman of the Ohio Society of CPAs. And you know, Amanda and Josh are two people whose perspectives and insights we we really respect. We always enjoy hearing. So we felt very fortunate to have them join us for this session. And in the session, we explore key trends in the rapidly evolving market for lifelong learning and look at their implications for trade and professional associations. We also look at how technology is transforming areas like workforce and career development and the role approaches like micro-learning and micro-credentialing will play in association business models going forward. So all in all, uh, we felt like it was a very valuable conversation and that's why we wanted to bring it to you as well. So without further ado, let's roll Facing and Embracing the Future of Learning from Surge 2017. Welcome to Participants in Surge 2017. I'm Jeff Cobb, Managing Director of Tagoras, and I'm happy to be joined by three distinguished colleagues for this session who I'm going to ask to introduce themselves. I'm Salisa Steele. I'm with Tagoras. I'm a co-founder and managing director there. Hi, I'm Josh Goldman. I'm Vice President of Learning with the Ohio Society of CPAs. Hello, I'm Amanda Beckner. I'm Vice President of Learning for Infocom International. So we're all thrilled to be here and to be talking about facing and embracing the future of learning. We're going to spend roughly the next hour on that, and we're going to talk broadly about the future of learning. There's obviously a lot happening, but we're also going to focus in on three areas that we think are particularly relevant right now, and those are the whole area of micro, which encompasses micro-learning and micro-credentialing. We're going to look at workforce development and the role that associations can potentially play in workforce development. And then we're going to look at the whole issue of value and business models and how those are changing or should change result on, resulting from everything that's going on out there at this point. So to tee things off, I'm going to hand it over to Salisa. Thanks, Jeff. So to start things off, this conversation around micro, so micro-learning and micro-credentialing, I thought we could start by uh, sharing some statistics. Uh, at Tagoras, we have been collecting um, statistics about the use of technology to support and enable learning um, at associations. We've been collecting that data um, for a number of years. Our first survey went back to 2009. We're on the cusp of releasing um, the latest survey data and the report with that. It's called Association Learning Plus Technology 2017. And what's particularly relevant here is that um, this year we have some statistics around um, the use of microlearning among associations. And the 2017 data 30.1% of respondents um, that use technology for learning report offering some form of microlearning. And then another 36.1% say that they're going to begin offering some form of microlearning in uh, the next year. So uh, if that pans out, that means by the end of 2018, we could see the majority of associations offering some microlearning. And, um, and this is also up a lot. We first collected data about microlearning in 2016, and back then it was only 18.1% of respondents that said they were doing microlearning. So we've seen a really big uptick, another big uptick predicted um, for next year, and I think that's really exciting. Um, the data we have around micro-credentialing, um, uh, it's not maybe quite as impressive. There's not quite yet the toehold there, but uh, 2017 data uh, 14.8% of respondents that use technology for learning said they're um, offering a micro-credential. And then if you look at those planning to do something in the next year, another quarter, 25.3% are planning to do something in the next year. So again, not quite as big as micro-learning, but certainly poised for a, a lot of growth. And, um, and I think that micro-credentials make a lot of sense for um, many associations. Many of them already offer some form of a fuller-blown certification uh, or credential. And so, you know, thinking about does it make sense to perhaps break that down into smaller bits and pieces, and um, that can be an obvious way to add some more value. I think it also can fit a lot with just what's happening in, in the world today. So with the market demand, you know, we have, Jeff, what you and I talk about, this sort of the other... 50 years between when people typically leave their formal education until, you know, kind of the end of their life. 
but we know that, you know, that college degree has a pretty short um, lifespan at this point. And so, you know, how are you going to go back and keep retooling and how are you going to prove um, that you're able to retool? And it seems like um, micro-credentials have a lot of um, potential there. And it seems like there's an obvious tie to micro-learning that, you know, the, the way to get to that micro-credential could be powered by micro-learning. We have a real rise in mobile learning now that we have such, you know, the, 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 now that we have so many smartphones and smart devices um, that we really can um, effectively deliver mobile learning. So all this seems tied together. I think we're poised for really big growth. But those are obviously kind of um, uh, sector-wide statistics, and they're you know useful perhaps as kind of a, a benchmarker to give us a snapshot. But I think it would be great to get some color commentary. And so, um, Josh, I'd like to turn to you first and uh, hear what the Ohio Society of CPAs is doing with micro, and maybe as importantly, more importantly, in terms of not just what you're doing, but why you're doing it, why you got started, why you're pursuing it. Perfect. That's a great introduction for that, Salisa. Thank you for the background and the context on what's driving the interest in microlearning. And all of those things were also true for the Ohio Society of CPAs. And my very first note was, remember to talk about the why. Always lead with the why. So what were we trying to achieve and why were we trying to achieve it? Primarily, our goal, we've been in the microlearning business since January of 2015. Uh, the staff, their CEO, um, our government relations and uh, regulatory-focused staff had been working for a long time prior Prior to that, um, with the regulators on how can we add flexibility and uh, adult learning best practices to the compliance-based education models and rules. And, and one of the things that we promoted, advocated for, and pushed for uh, was to launch a micro-learning concept in the CPA profession. Um, so we wanted to expedite the shift that was slowly starting to occur uh, of shifting away from compliance-based and always thinking about the minutes um, to what, how can you incorporate adult learning um, best practices into that model. The second thing we wanted to do was actually model better practices in learning and learning innovation. We all know, those of us that have been in the education business uh, for a long time, know that an hour sitting in a chair being lectured to is not the optimal, ideal, or enjoyable uh, learning situation. And we wanted to model some practices and needed some flexibility to be able to model that. So micro-learning plays a, a, a great um, uh, provides a great opportunity for flexibility in design uh, in terms of maybe pre-learning opportunities, post-learning opportunities. We knew we maybe could get into the subscription-based learning business once we were able to offer smaller chunks of uh, learning content. Or we can get into true uh, learning and consider spaced uh, learning opportunities. And Micro is a great mm -hmm. product to move into the spaced opportunity space spaced opportunity space. We're not quite there yet, and I'll talk a little bit about that in a minute, um, but let's talk about how we actually started this. We had been in the on-demand business for a number of years, so we already had a studio. We were already producing self-study, self-paced content, and about one-hour segments, <clears throat> so it was very easy from an internal production perspective um, to shift into micro-learning. We had all the assets. We had the staffing. We had the model to be in that business. Um, we launched with initially standalone micro product. So there, in, in our world, micro is 10-minute increments. Um, I know you can um, consider uh, shorter time and longer time from that, but from a regulatory perspective, we work in kind of 10-minute blocks. So we, we launched with standalone 10-minute blocks, and we're eventually going to move to more subscription-based learning and learning support use of micro with space learning. <laughs> And one thing that we have found particularly interesting from an application perspective, micro does work really, really well for just-in-time changes that might also be um, frequent or of a regulatory nature. So for the CPA environment, that is a, there's a lot of content, a lot of opportunity that changes frequently and is a regulatory nature. So we shifted away from developing just in standalone 10-minute segments to now I've contracted with an SME who monitors the regulatory space. And within 24 hours of a new financial standard being issued to the marketplace, we have a micro product that's been created, developed, and already and nice. ready to go into the market. Um, so it's re we're really, really responsive. So think about that model compared to how that may have worked in the past in a regulatory environment where you may have had to save those updates to, um, and lump them together to end up with a one-hour piece of content. Um, this is just in time, right when they need it, right when they're interested in it. And it just covers the just what you need to know, what I like to say to be dangerous, to know enough about what's going on to decide if you need to go to a deeper dive down the road. So we really look at it as a spectrum. Micro kind of introduces the content concept, gives you an awareness if you're maybe an executive that oversees that functional area that that's responsible, that that standard impacts. 
And then later there's a workshop or a much deeper dive that talks about the application or the how and how you get to it. So we're using micro learning in a couple of different ways. Uh, everyone always asks me about um, you know, market adoption. We have about 3% of our customer base that's utilizing micro learning in some capacity. We've been in the business for two years now. I'd like to see that grow, but we've taken a step back. And we're thinking about the role micro plays from a strategy perspective. Uh, so we've slowed down our development currently. We're continuing down the path of the subscription model and the SME on the regulatory changes. But in terms of uh, thinking about how we're going to use micro to support the learning experience, um, we're, we're pausing for a minute and really giving that some thought because we want to do that right. Uh, as one of the first states, CPA societies um, in the country to uh, adopt micro as a regulatory uh, change and then introduce a product to the market, uh, we want to do this right. We, we really want to do it right. We found uh, market success in that. We found acceptance. There have been some skeptics. If you're going to be in the micro space uh, asking, can you learn anything in 10 minutes? And, and my general response is uh, the average college educated adult can read a Harvard Business Review article in about 10 to 15 minutes. And if you can learn something from that Harvard Business Review article, why couldn't you learn something from a 10 minute video segment that covers the hows and what's and applicability of a, of a standard? Um, so it, the acceptance has been has been acceptable. Um, we'd like to see it grow and have a, a deeper, what I say, market penetration or adoption rate a, a, across the CPAs in Ohio. Uh, we're just trying to figure out now the, the best way to do that. Have there been any particular barriers to adoption that you've seen? I mean, do you, you think that the kind of uh, slower adoption or smaller adoption than maybe you had hoped, is that um, attributable to anything clearly or, or is that something um, you're trying to work out? I, I think that it is, this is definitely uh, opinion um, and not fact or quantitative. Uh, I think a couple of pieces to this. I think we have to work on the user experience on how you access and find micro learning products um, in our catalog and store and the way we take it to market. Um, that's why I'm really excited about the subscription opportunity that you kind of buy into a content area and we push micro learning to you when it becomes available as opposed to a um, pull or, or I guess we're pushing as opposed to a pull concept where you have to go to the store and find a 10-minute learning product on X topic. So user experience, I think we have some work to do there. So I encourage everyone that's um, you know listening and watching to think about that piece of micro learning. And then the other piece is the uh, regulatory nature of CBE. And we have some unfreezing to do in the marketplace. You know, my soul dies a little bit when I um, talk with a CPA and they tell me, you know, I learn all the time. I absolutely learn every day. That's how I'm successful. That's how I serve my clients. That's how I serve the business that I work inside of. CPE is what I do to keep my license. <laughs> and, you know, my soul dies every, every little bit more every day when, when I hear that. Uh, and our, uh, the Ohio Society of CPAs, you know, belief and ethos is that we put exceptional learning products into the market. And we're really trying to be a thought leader that suggests CPE is not just compliance and how you maintain your license. Now, that, that doesn't apply to our entire market. But there is a, you know, there's a nuance to the compliance-based regulatory market that changes, I think, the way people look at learning that qualifies to meet a certain regulatory requirement. Um, and so we're trying to lead the way and and kind of changing that perception, you know, making CPE fun again or cool again or valued again um, is one of the things that we're, we're trying to hang our hat on. And micro learning is just a, a component of that. Well, thanks yeah. for fighting the good fight there. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say, Josh, you, you've got a very seminar oriented group there too, I think. I mean, people who are, they, they want to show up for a day and get as much CPE as they possibly can or show up for a couple of days and get as much CPE as they can. So you're probably going to have to change some habits and, and help learners, you know, understand that this is a new way to be able to do it. Absolutely. And don't, uh, you know, don't operate under the assumption that it's only your younger and newer members that would be interested in this. Um, uh, seasoned professionals have just as little time as new professionals do, and they value just finding the content that speaks to what they're looking for, what they need to know to, to get their job done. Um, and don't just believe that it's applicable to a, a millennial environment or an age-based um, environment. Right. Well, thanks, Josh. And so, um, Mandy, would you add a little bit more color and tell us what um, Infocom International is doing with micro-credentialing? Happy to. Where Josh was talking about micro-learning being small 10-minute chunks of curriculum, it's a little bit different with micro-credentialing as far as how Infocom approaches it. So we've conditioned our audience to value professional certifications. We have an ANSI accredited certification called a CTS for audiovisual professionals. And when you buy into that kind of program, you start to say, well, are you going to do a certification on, on this topic? What about this topic? Well, 
And your credit certifications are a big lift. They are a heavy investment. And some things are just too niche in nature to really justify that kind of uh, investment. And that is where micro-credentialing comes in. So when we first started down the pathway of micro-credentialing, it wasn't to do micro-credentialing. We were actually in a room talking to our stakeholders about what they wanted from reporting out of our new LMS um, and in that meeting, there was a couple of things that came out where they said, you know, what we really need is to someone help support those who we have that are certified because certified professionals at companies, they are used for a lot of things to take advantage of that certification for business development value, for project value, for all kinds of things. So we created a micro-credential that first allows a very narrow training pathway to specific set of skills. Second, offers access to instructors virtually at a distance to help coach on things that would normally be handled by that certified person for an organization. And third, offers a way to have a credential, a credential that you can put on social media, on your resume, on your website that leads you to a portfolio of work that you can show demonstrates your competency in that skill set. So a little bit different from micro learning in that it is not small in, in, in time frame, or, but it is very narrow in scope. Well, and I love the, um, for me, that's one of the, the great benefits of, of the, the digital badges that, that linking to the portfolio, where it really is not just, um, uh, it's not just saying you have this uh, credential, which is, you know, valuable in and of itself, but someone can go and find out this is what you did to earn the credential and maybe even see the specific, um, you know, body of work provided to, to complete that, um, completed by the individual. So I think that's great. Um, h- how has a- adoption and response been uh, um, among your stakeholders at this point? So far, it's, it's great. We have rolled this out in June of this year, so we haven't, we haven't been at it mm-hmm. for very long, but we do have five people who have their micro-credentials. <laughs> um, so we're doing a lot of work with them to find out what the experience was like, how we learn from that, and how was the user experience. Um, Josh was talking about user experience, and, and we have made a couple of pivots in our user experience, too, just to help people um, realize the work that's involved and also to help the managers of people. So um, our micro-credentialing program is for new hires, mm-hmm. right? You, you just got hired yesterday kind of person. And we were relying on managers to really reinforce that doing the exercises and documenting them as part of the micro-credential is important because you want to have that portfolio at the end. And what we found was we have to do a lot more scaffolding in the experience of achieving the micro-credential to provide um, reinforcement in why you'd want to do that, Mm. um, why you'd want to go that extra mile, and the value of the coaching you get from an instructor in this kind of setting uh, on the work that you did and you submitted. So there was that to learn from. Uh, and we also have some uh, operational things that we ran into. For example, when you are a manager and you know that you're going to be hiring a couple of people and you're working with Infocom on a service package of what, what we might be able to give you, you might say, I, I have five people I'm bringing in, so I want to purchase micro-credentials for mm-hmm. those five people, but I don't have the names of them yet. Uh, and I have a system that is very much tied to, I need a name in order to give you uh, a registration or to take your money. So it's those kinds of logistics. We press pause on developing more micro-credentials until we satisfy that, that business operation. But the plan is, it sounds like, though, the plan is to ultimately roll out more. You just want to iron out some wrinkles and, uh, yes. and then proceed. Okay. Yes. Great. We have um, standards that we develop. We're an ANSI accredited standards developer and adoption of standards, um, just as Josh was t- discussing, those are, those are perfect for micro-credentials mm-hmm. because you can demonstrate your ability to do that, provide documentation, and now your company could probably add that to any um, kind of bid work that they do for projects saying, These, this is what our organization can offer and we have micro-credential to demonstrate that. Mm-hmm. Well, great. So we have, uh, you know, what the Ohio Society of CPAs is doing with micro learning, really focused on that sort of short bite size learning. We have what Infocom International is doing with micro credentialing, which is more around the smaller in scope as opposed to being as 
you know, that particularly small time commitment or something. And so I think those are two great examples of what's going on with micro in the association space. And um, we have some resources. We'll, we can link to some of the data that um, I cited about uh, the adoption of micro. We'll make that available at togoras.com slash surge, and we'll have some other resources there. And so if you are thinking about, you know, how can I maybe apply micro or begin to uh, adopt micro learning or micro credentialing at my organization, if that's something you haven't done yet, we wanted to offer a couple of reflection questions. And so um, the first one really involves you looking at your um, current portfolio of offerings and thinking about, okay, is there something that we might be able to remix as something smaller? So if you already offer, for example, or a fuller blown certification would it make sense? Would there be value in breaking that into smaller micro credentials that could potentially um, even stack up into that fuller blown uh, credential? If you have a really in-depth curriculum, um, would bits and pieces of that um, stand on their own and could those become micro learning um, components? So that's just kind of a, a place to start to think about what you already have in your portfolio and whether or not um, taking a micro approach with any of that would work. And then, um, also think about the positioning of your micro learnings. You know, you have like with Mandy, you were talking about with at Infocom, you have the fuller blown certification and then you have the micro credentialing. Um, and, you know, Josh, you were talking about it as well. You have, you know, the more in-depth learning and now you have the, the 10 minute CPE. So thinking about how you position those offerings um, compared to some of your other offerings and making sure that the micro and the value of those um, is conveyed in a way that preserves the value of both the micro and of what you already have in your um, portfolio. And so thinking about that unique benefit of each format and uh, kind of a, a hint, I think, to help in, in this question, and we'll talk about it more later, is, is the value ramp. I think that's something that can be very helpful. And then a, a third question is just to think about, are there any barriers that you're going to need to uh, address before micro is going to be adopted? I mean, Josh, you talked about the regulatory um, uh, issues that had to be dealt with, you know, before you even, you know, committed anything towards developing micro learning. So potentially, um, uh, you know, others might be in that same situation where there's regulatory um, issues that need to be dealt with, or even just the case of sort of educating your market, you know, are they ready for this idea of, of micro? And I think you also touched on that, um, Josh and, and Mandy, you talked about too, conveying the value of why you want to put in the effort um, to, to get this micro credential. So those are side of kind of three things, looking at your current portfolio, what might you be able to, to break apart? Um, then thinking about how do you um, articulate the value of any new micro offerings and, and making sure that doesn't detract from what you're already offering. And then are there any bar barriers that you need to address? So I think that kind of ties a bow up uh, around um, micro. And so Jeff, I'll hand it over to you to introduce our, our second topic. Yes, thank you. And, and I'll, I'll stress there, you know, obviously those are great reflection questions to to reflect on on your own. They're also great group discussion questions, just, you know, getting people in the room and, and having some conversation around those, those questions at your organization, uh, a good way to build on the learning from, from this, uh, this session. Now, the next thing we want to talk about is workforce development. And, and really, that's kind of a, a backdrop to things like uh, micro-learning and micro-credentialing. There's a whole issue of people really needing to uh, keep their skills up, add new skills throughout their careers. And that's sort of on the, the learner to be a lifelong learner and do that. But there are also challenges now for employers in making sure that they're, you know, helping to maintain people in their careers, but also getting the right talent in. Um, and, you know, we've heard a lot out there about there potentially being uh, talent shortages. And so we want to look at, you know, where do, where do associations and where does the learning that associations provide pro potentially fit into that and, and potentially help to address workforce development issues. And I'll just throw out a, a few stats and, and observations to, to tee things up before going back to, uh, to Josh and Amanda to talk about their specific experiences with this. There, there's a recent study, uh, talent shortage survey that um, Manpower Group did, the big uh, uh, staffing company. And uh, they found that uh, globally, employers are reporting the highest talent shortage since 2007. So employers are not finding the, the skilled people they need to come into positions. You know, that's what they're, they're telling manpower. Um, uh, another one that, that's out there right now, and this is kind of from a different perspective, we're obviously seeing a lot of automation going on, robotics, artificial intelligence. That's changing the landscape, and it's changing the skill set that people need coming into a profession. And so um, this one, 
uh, is saying that uh, 47% of jobs in the United States will be significantly impacted or replaced by artificial intelligence and automation within the next decade. That's obviously going to disrupt uh, many fields, many industries in many ways, and it's going to have an impact on what the, the talent pipeline coming in needs to be and, and how that needs to be sustained over time. Uh, another one I'll, I'll note here, this isn't a statistic, but there was an, an economist report uh, recently on the role of lifelong learning and how critical it's become. And we did a podcast on this and have written about it. We'll make sure we include that in, in some resource links as well as links to the statistics that I've uh, just quoted for you. But, uh, you know, the economist is stressing that um, technology is making it necessary to have a combination of skills or to really, um, you know, have hybrid skills that, that you're bringing to a, a job. And, um, you know, most people don't, don't have that. I mean, they've been trained in one particular thing, but they need this broad array of skill sets now to really operate effectively. And again, that's something they're probably going to have to pick up after they've had any sort of formal education as they're going out into the, uh, the workforce. Um, and then the last thing I'll say is that training has actually been dropping in, in many instances, uh, the amount of training that employers are providing. Um, so this is also, I, I believe, in that economist report where it says in the 2015 economic report of the president, uh, America's Council of Economic Advisors found that the share of the country's workers receiving either paid for or on-the-job training had fallen steadily between 1996 and 2008. So the, the training the workers are receiving on the job is dropping. At the same time, there's this potential talent shortage out there. At the same time, we're seeing artificial intelligence, automation, all these other forces changing the work landscape. It certainly seems like there is a big role for trade and professional associations to play here around talent, around workforce development. Josh, I know that's been on the minds of your CEO and you at the Ohio CPAs. What, how are you thinking about workforce development and, and what are you doing about it in your particular field? Yeah, thanks, Jeff. It's, uh, it's a huge issue for the profession globally. Um, all state societies are discussing this, the AICPA, the National and International Association that, that serves the profession. Um, when we talk to our members, they tell us that there are three things that keep them up at night. Number one is regulatory changes, trying to keep up what's going on with regulation. Mm -hmm. Two, just general pace of change of their business and trying to figure out how to modify their business to respond to their clients and market needs. And number three is talent management. And when we talk deeper with them about talent management, it's about workforce development. How do I find qualified um, talent at both the entry level, but also the seasoned professional um, years? Uh, how do I train that talent to be um, uh, a productive and uh, good client uh, service focused? And then third, how do I align people, right? How do I align people to the direction that we're trying to go and what's trying to happen? Uh, there are a lot of market forces that are creating that press, that pressure on talent management and making that the number three issue for the CPA profession. And, and one of those forces is there are more people graduating with accounting degrees than ever before, but as a ratio of those that pursue a CPA credential, uh, they are not growing at the same pace. So more people going into accounting, interested in accounting and the business, the language of business, right? That's what accounting is. More people going into it, the less of them are pursuing the credential, the CPA credential. And that's creating some forces and some presses that, that makes talent management at the top. Uh, the, other pay, the other piece is, and I think this is fair to, fair to say, the educational environment, the higher education environment is under a number of presses and forces itself. And our members who work in um, industry and CPA firms are articulating that their new employees are coming job ready. Um, they don't talk about audit methodologies and tax and accounting issues being what they're missing. They're really talking about applicable people skills and essential and soft skills most of the time. So I think there definitely is this tie-in and opportunity between micro-credentialing, micro-learning, job readiness, and that gap between um, really realistically what can be achieved when you walk out of a, the doors of higher education and into a workplace and who, whose responsibility is that? Um, I think there's a, a tremendous opportunity for associations to play in there, what they call the third sector, the third wheel, um, uh, to, to be that lifelong learning um, provider, that entity that helps employers bridge that gap for their employees. And whether you're an individual society, a trade, or a, or a mixed model, I, I think there's something um, just on the cusp for us of a significant trend and change in how associations create um, value for their membership base and the employers that they work for. And we're definitely going to get back to that uh, value question uh, here shortly. Um, 
but you know, certainly there, there, there is a role to play. And I, I remember talking to, um, to Scott Wiley, your CEO, who is also the, uh, the president of the American Society of Association Executives. And you know, one of the points of conversation we had is that you know, trade and professional associations play such a significant role in workforce development and talent development in the whole lifelong learning process but we aren't necessarily recognized for that. If you ask somebody on the street, where is that happening? They aren't necessarily going to say, oh, it's the trade and professional associations that are you know, fundamental to this third sector. And I think you know, for all organizations, just among their own members, but uh, among the broader public that's aware of them to, to help raise that awareness um, mm-hmm. that this is a vital role that organizations are playing. I think that's essential. And it goes to that whole relevance question that you know, so many are gnashing their teeth about in the, their teeth mm-hmm. about in the uh, association <laughs> sector that uh, you know, th- there's nothing more relevant than that, I think. Um, yeah. Absolutely, I mean, Jeff. Yeah. I was going to say that. I'm sorry to interrupt, but on the, applic- the applicability piece, so, you know, what do you do about it as a society or an association? And where we're dedicating uh, a number of resources right now uh, is on the pipeline. How do we attract more people? Um, how do we get those that are already strongly interested in accounting and, and the business fields um, to consider working for CPA firms or working inside the finance departments of corporations and how to pursue their credentials? So we're working a grassroots effort about how you change the, the way the CPA credential is talked about. You know, if you picture a CPA right now, you're going to have a picture in your mind of what that individual is, how they behave, how they act, and what they do on a day-to-day basis. Um, and that perception, that stereotype is such a small piece of what the actual marketplace is. Um, so we're, we're spending time on grassroots efforts. Um, we're also, uh, I would say, uh, applying the number one power that I think associations have that they may not utilize. And that's the power to convene. So we've been having a lot of conversations between the academic um, providers, um, employers, individual CPAs, and students about how do we address this as a community, right? Associations are a community. We have the power to bring those parties together. That's why we were created to begin with uh, and to utilize that power to to best understand those needs and how the market can uh, potentially turn inward on itself and serve itself. Uh, We often think, I think as association professionals, that we have to be in the business of providing the solution. We have to create it and then we have to provide it. Uh, And sometimes we just have to create the space um, to enable that value or that creation to happen. And I think that might be um, one of the ways that the workforce development solution comes comes to bear. It may, it may not actually be creating another product or service. It might be playing the power to convene. Right, right. That's a great point. Um, and you've, you've brought up the word pipeline a number of times as you've been talking. Um, Mandy, I know, you know, pipeline is something you're looking at as well from a somewhat different perspective. And I know, you're doing, you're, you're tapping into, I think, what is going to be one of the, the, the great opportunities in workforce developments and collaboration with another sector, in, the, in this case, the academic se- sector, to, to look at pipeline and, and how that can, you know, how the pipeline can be filled, basically. Can you talk a little bit more about what you're doing at Infocom? Sure, I'd be happy to. So Infocom was approached actually a couple of years ago. Infocom started going to universities and saying, we have this fabulous certification program curriculum. We have textbooks through McGraw-Hill Publishing. How do we get our curriculum as part of your programs? Mm. And people were very nice and had conversations with us, but it requires a champion. It was a heavy lift for folks to integrate it into their degree program or start a new degree program. And we didn't get a whole lot of traction. Fast forward seven years later, and we started getting calls from state institutions saying, hi, we see that you have a certification program. And so we started asking, what what led you to call us? And something that we heard was, you know, our our schools are being directed by the governors um, through funding to provide education where there are a lot of jobs. And there's a lot of market data that indicates the jobs in audiovisual are out there in every market and for a variety of disciplines and interest areas. So that was terrific here. The timing was finally perfect. So I'm excited that right now, today, there are um, two universities that engaged with us a year ago about really taking our curriculum and running with it to make a degree program. And there's a a two-year institution in Boston and a two-year institution in um, Orlando, Florida that have a degree program with our 
curriculum and, and students will come out with our certifications as well. And we're thrilled about that. And you might imagine that those institutions are very excited about the micro-credentialing program too, because it's a nice stepping stone for mm -hmm. all those students who are studying that material anyway, um, to get internships while they continue to study, um, to make themselves even more marketable for jobs that are out there. And the employers are thrilled. It's great. It all, it all fits together strategically yeah. then. Yeah, yeah. And I've, I've seen a number of institutions, uh, I mean, a number of uh, associations striking those sorts of partnerships with, uh, with institutions. I've seen that in composite uh, manufacturing uh, in, the, in the community college sector, uh, potentially, uh, uh, especially in the technical schools. And um, in NIGP, the, um, the, uh, the Institute for Governmental Purchasing, where I serve on the board, we also have a relationship, uh, and it's, it's based on certification, you know, as you're saying, which was very attractive to the academic partners. Uh, so definitely, definitely a, a fertile area uh, in, in the whole realm of workforce development. Uh, Mandy, will you, will you touch on a little bit to you? Um, I think you struck a nerve for me in a, in a very positive way. Um, Governor said there's funding for where the jobs are. <laughs> um, uh, don't, you know, don't gloss over that. We've just started having conversations mm. with our um, governor's office of Ohio workforce transformation. And, you know, I think workforce development traditionally had a um, blue collar connotation to it, right? It, it right. was about manufacturing and it was about some of those, um, some of those jobs and it, it's being redefined. The marketplace is redefining what workforce development really means. Um, and and state-based governments and federal governments are putting resources behind how to make people job ready and how to fill those roles. Uh, I would I would really encourage everyone um, state-based to to take a look at your in-demand jobs list. We found accounting and auditors mm -hmm. are um, top ten. Um, the only people ahead of them are healthcare related. Um, and then there's some interesting resources. If you're trying to think about how to solve this issue with the U.S. Chamber of Commerce Foundation, they have some great white papers in terms of models for approaching workforce development issues. Um, so, yeah, Manny, that really like reminded me how important that component of workforce development is, um, the, the governmental and the, the jobs piece. And then there's funding out there. I mean, whether that's for the association itself or whether it's you you know, helping your member companies, if you're a you know, trade, uh, trade association, uh, to secure that funding, which is a great way to you know, help provide value to your, your membership base. But, uh, but money is out there around this. So it's an interesting area from, from that perspective as well. Um, the ASAE Foundation is working on this. They've uh, established a task force on workforce development um, mm -hmm. out of the foundation. And I would imagine everyone should be seeing those kind of resources or um, information about it coming in the next several months. And speaking of resources, we will make sure that we post a number of resources around workforce development and this talent shortage issue, and we'll post it at tagoras.com slash surge. Um, and just to kind of wrap up this segment, wanted to offer, again, a few um, questions that you could either explore on your own or with your team collectively discuss them. And so, you know, think about what... Um, gaps uh, in terms of skills and, and knowledge might exist in the field that you serve? And then, you know, what could your organization um, do? Where are your strongest opportunities for trying to fill one or more of those gaps? So that's kind of one uh, set of questions. And then secondly, um, you know, think about um, what kinds of new knowledge um, or skills are likely to be demanded by the growth in automation and artificial intelligence. Um, so think about that. And then, you know, being um, forewarned is being forearmed. And then you can think about what impact that might have on your field and on the education that you're providing. And then um, as Mandy and Infocom is doing, you know, think about partnerships, you know, are there other organizations, whether that's uh, corporations, whether that's academia, whether that's potentially other associations, you know, does it make sense for you to collaborate uh, and work on, uh, work with others to address um, workforce issues? So sort of three sets of questions uh, to think about around that. And then Jeff, we're going to head into our uh, third segment here, our third trend and topic. That's right. I mean, you know, everything we've been talking about here, I think, uh, points to the, the question of value. And the word value has already come up, you know, quite a few times in this, uh, how to provide value. What is the value uh, that trade and professional associations can provide that's connected to, to learning? And, and, and certainly the whole value discussion has been 
a big one for years. I mean, I, I have a hard time remembering now when association leaders have not been fretting about, okay, what is our value now? You know, now that social media has come along, the internet's come along, all these disrupting forces that have come along. How do we make sure that we stay relevant? How do we make sure that we are providing value? And, and, and certainly, you know, the learning function is intimately connected into that. Most organizations, when they go out and, and survey their members about what do they value in the association, you can be pretty sure that education is going to come back in the, you know, one, two or three spot uh, when they do that uh, again and again. And uh, I was working with an organization recently where they were hearing that enough that they finally made the move to stop selling education separately and to make it the core of the membership proposition. So when you pay for membership with them at this point, you get the education and not just the online stuff, everything like that is, that is it. That's what you're paying for basically is, uh, is access to, the great educational programming that they provide. So, and I suspect, you know, in, in, in certain markets, that makes a lot of sense. We're probably going to see more of that uh, going forward. Um, I'd love to hear, you know, uh, Josh, uh, or actually, Mandy, let's start with you this time. What's, what's your perspective on that? I know you've been, uh, you know, looking at, at value and, and where learning fits into things at Infocom. Yes, you're describing us perfectly. Um, Our members say that the top three things they value is education, certification, and standards. And I oversee all three. Uh, We are actually changing our membership structure. We've done a value proposition study. And for years, we had the online courses, several of which the titles were free. The rest of them were a la carte. Then you have your classroom, virtual classroom courses, classroom courses, and certification. And that decades, that was our model. Mm-hmm. So we really, since 1995, we've conditioned people to approach online courses as something that would be free or very inexpensive. And we all know that there's more value there. So um, how do we address this? It's, it's what our audience wants, um, but there's other things that we can be doing if we get out of this mindset that online is a certain thing and of a certain value. Uh, so the way we are doing it is uh, we are going to a subscription model too for our online. And when you purchase your membership, a lot of services will be included in that, including the subscription for online for the professional mm. society members. So that, that was a, a big shift for us and caused yeah. us to, to plot the value of a lot of our products and services on the Tagoras model of a value ramp. So if you could take a second to describe that, I can tell you where we saw gaps in, and where we're going and that's why. Sure. And I love this because it's, you know, the, the, the value ramp in action uh, by an association. So, you know, the, the basic idea behind the value ramp is that there is a relationship between price and value and anything you offer. And of course, we, we apply this to, to learning offerings. Um, so, you know, if you imagine a, a curve you know, starting from the, the bottom left-hand side of a, of a double axis and then, you know, going up like this, towards that bottom left-hand side is where you're going to offer things that are valuable um, but aren't your highest value products. Um, and oftentimes, you're going to ask to offer them for free. In fact, these days, you pretty much have to offer some things for free down at the bottom of your value ramp because we look at that as a way to create momentum to pull people up uh, the value ramp. So, you, and you're going to move, that might be, you know, white papers, video clips, social media, those sorts of things. You're providing value but not charging for them. And then you move into charging for things. Um, and those might be, you know, some of your basic courses, online or off um, webinars, things like that, um, might be some of your paid research. And you keep moving up that value ramp and you get into, your higher value, higher price products. Often this is conferences. Uh, we find a lot of times it's, um, as you get towards the middle of that value ramp, a lot of associations are kind of heavy there because they've got their traditional, you know, conference and seminar type offerings. They may not have much that's creating momentum down here. And then they may not have much on the other side of uh, that, that middle area where you get into things that are you know, really customized, really high value for the, the membership base that you're going to charge a lot more for. And the whole idea is you want to have, you know, you want to tell a value story along that ramp that, uh, you know, even if you don't draw it out literally for people, that they, they get it rationally that this is kind of how things ramp up with your organization, how they're going to access more value. And it's logical that they're going to be paying more over here than they are down uh, at the bottom. And, and we, you know, tell organizations, get in a room with the right people, draw, just draw it up on, on the board and start plotting things out. What do you have right now? Where do you see big gaps on that ramp? Where are your, where are your opportunities there? And it sounds like you did something similar to that. We did that, and we saw in that momentum area is where we had a big gap. So we needed something with the right amount of opportunity costs 
to, to help us um, draw people away from the freemium mm-hmm. model kind of offerings. Um, and, and we wanted to keep our opportunity costs reasonable. And one way to do that is to, to do a lot of things that are online. Well, when you have an audience that you conditioned, that a user experience that starts off online is free, it becomes very difficult. And that's where we've integrated a lot of um, consulting uh, work with uh, our staff instructors as your Skype to Skype kind of coach to take you from something that was self-paced and online to something that you are doing an exercise that is tactical, documenting something, using hand tools, depends Mm -hmm. on the nature of the program. And then working with a coach who is your mentor and helping you at a distance um, and, and, or in small groups to add add additional learning value to what was traditionally just self-paced and by yourself in a little island in a silo. Um, So we've added some products there, micro-credentials being one of them. And then we've taken a look at some of our custom offerings too. What else can we offer at the top of that ramp that might draw attention up to say, well, what, what is that item? Mm -hmm. What else do you have that I'm not getting full value out of? And that's where licensing comes in. We've long done contract training where you can hire us to come and, and do your education online or classroom. But now we're licensing out our, our online courses, our, our SCORM files, and licensing out our classroom courses, our instructional materials, and everything to other organizations. And um, that's been very beneficial because now they can customize and they have some agency over the t- tenor in which they offer something, the, the context around it, right. um, they can break it up and do more things with it. And, and it's been very beneficial for a number of large organizations. Josh, you're doing something similar, right? You're going, or at least going down a similar path. Uh, we are. We've spent, uh, you know, under Nurse Scott Lyle's leadership a number of time really trying to understand what's our value proposition and what business are we going to be in. Um, CPE and the um, CPA space is highly competitive, highly commoditized. Um, so I, I think you either try to fight that and it's potentially a losing battle when you're an organization our size with our market space, um, or you accept that and figure out that there is a part of your customer base that will treat it like a commodity um, instead of saying, no, we're not going to be in that business. How do you figure out a way to serve that customer that is interested in that business? And so we're undergoing a complete uh, strategic review of everything about how learning um, operates, works, occurs in the Ohio Society of CPAs. We, read our, our, we redefined our overall mission for the society, and we've incorporated more of a blended model, I would say, into that mission. So we still focus on the core. The individual CPA is our core member, is who we provide value to. But we added, and the employers who employ them. So we know that we have the capability um, to serve the individual CPA. We've done that since the inception of the society. But we thought that we were leaving a lot of value opportunity on the table by not creating a relationship with the employers that employ those CPAs. And those end up, you know, that that creates a different kind of conversation and a different kind of opportunity discussion that OSCPA may have value and resources and assets that could be leveraged in a very different way to provide tremendous value to the employer. So we've been piloting um, business-to-business enterprise models on membership where the customer is the employer. Um, We've been spending a ton of time out in the market um, with the 24, what I call the 24 inches of truth. It's the the space across the desk that you're sitting (laughs) in front of that customer. Um, And you you talk with them about what they like about the society, what they wish we would do, what they feel like we're not doing. Um, And and we we learned a lot from the 24 inches of truth. Uh, We have a goal right now uh, to achieve 120 employer visits um, this fiscal year among our senior team. And so we're on the road in Ohio constantly sitting across that desk and better understanding um, what they're trying to accomplish in their business and where we can be supportive of, of those initiatives and endeavors. Um, it's been, it has been eye-opening, um, challenging, and informative, all, all of those things. And I think that we're on the cusp of a uh, transformational period, uh, at least in our organization and society, about how we create value for that marketplace, uh, making a lot of decisions about where we buy, where we build, where we partner, um, how we bring things to market, how we bring things to the table. Um, it's, a, it's an exciting time to be here. It's a, also a challenging time to be here as, uh, you know, um, attrition and you know continued live course registrations continue to struggle and those kind of things so you're 
right, uh, Mandy, I don't know if you've had this experience of, uh, I, I describe it as changing the, the engine on the plane while you're still flying in the air. Yes. You, have a, you have a revenue and an economic model that has been successful. You have challenges to that and you have to switch it um, mid-course. And how do you do that and not crash in the process? Right. Um, I think everyone is, everyone is struggling with. 24 inches of truth. That might be the tweetable phrase from uh, <laughs> this session. There you go. Uh, you know, it's a great, I've worked for national and international organizations and I love them. One of the beautiful things about being state-based is um, I can get to most of my members in two hours. And so, you know, in the morning I'm talking with um, an employee, the chief learning officer of a 400 person firm. And in the afternoon, I'm talking with the CFO of a, you know, fortune 500 company and trying to figure out, What's OSCPA's value proposition? What can we do? I have one question around that. I mean, have you gotten any pushback or folks pretty readily um, available when you say, hey, I'd like to come talk to you? Um, do you have to do much of a sales there to get their time? You know, we've, we've been pretty lucky. And I think that's the deep relationship that the staff have had with the various employers. Um, so obviously we started mostly with what we would call our first family firms. Um, and some of these pilots or first family organizations or companies that have a long history of loyalty to this society um, and, and started some of those pilots with them because we, we knew there was a trust there. And if frankly, if we mess some things up, we get a little bit of um, opportunity to course correct. Um, but yeah, we've, we've been fortunate to, uh, be able to get those meetings and have those conversations. Good. Well, fantastic. Um, well, I think, you know, in, in, in this conversation and all throughout, it seems like we've just had an, an intense focus on, on the one hand, user experience, um, what that user experience needs to be. Uh, but then uh, that leads to that that value question, and uh, you know I, I, lo- I love that, uh, that Josh, when you just sort of changed your value proposition or really your audience, you know, and, and just changed a few words to include and the employers who employ them, or however you phrase that, that mm-hmm. I mean, that opened up a whole new world of value just by doing that very simply. And it wasn't just random value either; that was that was very strategic. That fit for who you are as an organization, and, and certainly, you know, as we head into the future of learning really being able to focus in on, on value is going to be absolutely essential. And so we'll put some resources up related to this value question and business models questions. We'll put that at tagoras.com slash surge. Um, and um, we'll link to um, some information about the value ramp and kind of the follow-up reflection questions and activities um, tie uh, largely at least one of them to that value ramp. So, you know, sit down and go through that exercise that uh, Jeff talked about where you plot out your offerings uh, along the value ramp and sort of see where it is that you are building momentum and kind of uh, the, the no cost uh, or small costs and how you're um, ramping that up until you're providing lots of value and able to then also command the, uh, the, the higher price that goes with that higher value. So, you know, plot it out, then look for where there are gaps and then see where are the opportunities to, to fill in those gaps and make sure that you, your uh, customers and members sort of see that trajectory and don't have a place to sort of fall off uh, the ramp because you're, you have something all along that, that curve. And then um, think too about, you know, who you should be talking to uh, more often and maybe more in depth to better understand what value you could be um, offering. And, and Josh, it sounds like that's something that you guys at the oh. Ohio Society of CPAs really heavily invested in. Um, uh, this year and, and dedicating that time uh, among the senior management to go out and have those conversations. So those are just two suggestions uh, in terms of if you're looking at your organization, thinking about how do we better get a, get a better grip around what value we are providing and what further value we might provide. We suggest those two things. And so with that, I, I believe we're coming to the end of our time here. So uh, thank you to everyone for participating you know, to wrap things up, we've been talking about facing and embracing the future of learning and, and talking about that from the standpoint of trade and professional associations, which is going to be, you know, most of the people who are listening in here. But, you know, the other side of that uh, is the learner. Uh, you know, as we move forward into the future, certainly we as organizations want to be, make sure that we're providing excellent experiences. But we also have to empower learners because, I mean, the world has changed so dramatically. We've talked about people doing micro-learning, doing micro-credentialing. They're also doing tons of other different types of learning, and they have to be fully empowered and fully enabled as learners. Um, and, you know, one of the things that, uh, that we've found is important in that is, is modeling what that looks like um, to help your learners understand. So as we're exiting today, 
all of us would implore you to really take seriously the idea of looking at these reflection questions, of sitting down and discussing them, of using the resources, exploring the resources. You've got a recording here so you can go back and replay anything that you want to replay and, and use it uh, as a resource going forward. But take those actions, you know, learning doesn't, knowledge and information don't turn into learning unless you actually take those actions. So We'll implore you to do that. You're going to have access to those resources again at tagoras.com slash surge. You also have access to any of us. We're going to make sure that, you know, you have our contact information. So use the resources, contact us with any questions you have, and good luck to everybody as you head into the future of learning. That wraps up the recording of Facing and Embracing the Future of Learning. To get show notes for this episode, go to leadinglearning.com slash episode 114. While you're there, you will see a link for Review My LMS. If your organization uses a learning management system, we urge you to get over to Review My LMS, leave a review, and help your peers at other organizations make a good choice when they're faced with selecting an LMS. While you're at the show notes for the episode, you'll also see various options for subscribing. And if you're getting value out of Leading Learning, we would be truly grateful if you would subscribe. We'd also be grateful if you would take just a minute to give us a rating and leave a comment on iTunes. To do that, go to leadinglearning.com slash iTunes. We really appreciate that, and it makes a world of difference in helping others find the podcast. And please do consider telling others about the podcast. You can do that by going to leadinglearning.com slash share, and that will automatically pop up a tweet that you can send out already pre-filled with some language. And if tweeting doesn't happen to be your thing, you can take that language and put it into any other social network of your preference. Thanks again, and see you next time on the Leading Learning Podcast.